conflict is a normal part of organizational life. There will inevitably be some kind of conflict when a group of people works together because no one is similar in every way. It's also important to remember that conflict is not always a bad thing. In fact, conflict can be conducive to developing good ideas, creative solutions to problems, relationships, and other outcomes. Today on The Communicative Leader, we dive into best practices for managing conflict, discuss conflict between leader and member and peers, and consider how to better understand our own conflict style. Let's have some fun. Hello and welcome to The Communicative Leader, hosted by me, Dr. Leah O'Million Hodges. My friends call me Dr. O. I'm a professor of communication and a leadership communication expert. On The Communicative Leader, we're working to make your work life what you want it to be. Conflict is inevitable, as are disagreements, misunderstandings, misspeaking, or talking out of turn on the occasion. There, I said it. Let's just get it out there. We know these things are part and parcel with organizational life and, well, life in general. So addressing it head on helps empower us and can equip us to navigate these situations with tact and grace and with a relational focus. Here's the thing. Aside from with family members and some close friends, we likely spend most of our time interacting with colleagues and our manager. These are long-term relationships. These, my friends, are also non-chosen or non-selective relationships, which means, generally speaking, we are not choosing our coworkers or our leader. Even when we're on a hiring committee or have a say in the process, the final decision may not be ours. And honestly, interview processes don't necessarily give us a full picture of what it's like to work with someone day in and day out. Many of us have come to see conflict as a negative, as something to fear or to avoid. And I get it. We have all had conflict in the past that has gone awry. That hasn't panned out the way we had hoped or escalated in unexpected and damaging ways. Sometimes if we don't know how to navigate conflict, we tend to just leave it and expect it to go away or hope it will disappear kind of magically or resolve itself. Does that happen? Uh, Not as often as we may hope. What's more likely? That the unresolved conflict grows legs and attaches itself to the relationship or the group. All of a sudden, that one disagreement hangs over us as we try to make other decisions or as we try to collaborate on projects. Then that one topic we don't talk about, the one related to the original conflict, all of a sudden it becomes two things we don't talk about. Then three. You can see where I'm going with this. But conflict isn't all bad. Conflict is a way to show that members care, that they're invested in organizational decisions. But people also differ in how they handle conflict, and that can make it difficult for leaders to connect with some employees or for employees to connect with their leader. Today, we're going to do four things. First, we're going to start off by thinking about some general guidelines for managing conflict, and then we're going to move into some common scenarios. Conflict between leader and member, between members, and then between leaders. Then we're going to look at conflict management styles. Finally, we're going to focus on three specific communication strategies that can help you to feel empowered as you navigate conflict in a respectful and a tactful and effective way. 
So let's start with some general guidelines for managing conflict before reviewing these specific workgroup scenarios. First, I'm excited because these suggestions come from my dear friends, Autumn and Chad Edwards, from their 2019 book, The Communication Age. They co-authored it with Sean Wall and Scott Myers. And second, why are we starting with general guidelines before diving into media or workgroup conflict stuff? I want these practices to color how we view workplace conflict. When we are primed to think about conflict through these general best practices, it can help us to dive into the specifics and better understand these intricacies of navigating conflict. So one, I want you to address that conflict promptly. I know this can be really hard, and certainly if tempers are high, you take that step back and let everyone cool off first so that we can have a conversation when we feel level-headed. But if we wait too long to address conflict, it can give the impression that it's resolved when it's still lingering there. And then also failing to address the issue might leave one or both parties feeling disrespected or like they're not valued. Okay, so we're gonna address that conflict promptly. Two, we're gonna talk about this issue face-to-face if possible. And this can include over a video software. Uh, then we have the nonverbals and we can draw from those cues as well. So it might be more comfortable to go to your desk or your office and rattle off that apology via email or text. But this introduces some more risk of misunderstandings. Face-to-face communication, like we said, it integrates those nonverbals. So we have the body language, we have the tone, It can go a really long way in portraying empathy and sincerity. I also want you to think about using I statements, and this is not new for us on The Communicative Leader, right? This is something that we've talked about in several episodes, and why? Because they work, because they help to diffuse situations, because they help to allow us to communicate our needs and our feelings in a respectful way. So again, using I statements is routinely ranked as a best communication practice, and it becomes essential in times of conflict. Using I language allows you to avoid blaming or shaming language, and instead, it allows us to focus on our feelings. So instead of saying something like, oh, you make me so angry, is what your manager might want to say or what you might want to say to someone, You might rephrase that as saying, I feel frustrated about the outcome of that client meeting. And that can be used as a way to open the door to a more productive conversation. Also want you to think about the issue and not the person. And this can be really tough, right? Especially when we feel like this person is always on our last nerve or, oh, I knew they were going to say this. And the problem is maybe they are being the devil's advocate and they're bringing attention to something that we might not have considered. So when we focus on the issue, right, maybe it's the project instead of the person, we can keep the discussion professional. Also, by returning to a project's goals, for example, we might be able to reconnect on our shared interests rather than the frustration that we have for each other or various work styles. Finally, practice active listening. Again, this suggestion has popped up before. It will pop up again, but it can effectively nip conflict in the bud in addition to helping to build and maintain relationships. 
Active listening means, my friends, that we are focusing on the other's content. So what they're saying, the tone, how they're saying it, and their body language. It does not mean, it does not mean appearing to listen while actually formulating a mental rebuttal. Because when you're engaged in active listening, it's easier to understand the other's perspective, which might then help you to focus on similarities or at the very least, a better understanding of where this other person is coming from. So now that we have some of these best practices in hand, let's think about some common workgroup relationships that might result in conflict from time to time. So let's start with conflict between leader and member. So in addition to the conflict resolution guidelines that we've talked about, Leaders and members are encouraged to put themselves in each other's shoes, right? And as my, my very astute colleagues, you know, Chad and Autumn Edwards and their co-authors have said, most of the time, each person is correct about at least part of the problem. And I love that, recognizing that typically one person isn't completely right and the other is completely wrong, but rather we, we both have pieces to this puzzle that are necessary, So by enacting empathy, it can allow both the leader and the member that opportunity to try and understand where the other is coming from and to acknowledge the potential benefits of the other person's point of view. So what happens if this isn't resolved? Well, unresolved conflict between a leader and an employee, it can lead to infrequent communication or maybe worse yet, hostile communication. I like to think of this as losing an arm of the work group. It is in the best interest of the leader, the member, and the group as a whole for dyads to engage in this open, honest, collaborative communication. What else? So my formal leaders out there, I want you to be mindful. Research tells us that if your employees, if they feel like you have mistreated a coworker, or the leader is otherwise wrong and has not attempted to rectify the situation, employees come together to try and make sense of the, inf- of the issue, right? They're going to exchange information. They're going to try to, to understand what happened and what to do next. So when we leave members to try and make sense of neg- negative events on their own, especially those that appear to stem from the leader's behavior, that is likely to damage the workgroup climate. I was just in a lunch and learn regarding conflict, and something I really took away that might be especially germane between conflict between a leader and a member. The one with the position power might start by asking something like, What do you hope to get out of this conversation? Or ideally, how would this meeting end, you know, from your perspective? By immediately addressing what the other person is looking for can be a really fruitful place to start. It can also be helpful if as the leader or decision maker, you know that that's not an option. While it's certainly not what they're hoping to hear, it is better to begin on this note and consider alternatives than spend time and energy only to arrive at this fact 30 or 45 minutes later, right? Now I want us to consider conflict between members. Conflict between two peers is toxic to a work group. Lateral communication like that between two employees can be incredibly challenging 
if members are vying for one promotion or otherwise feel like they're in competition rather than working in concert. Part of the reason that this type of workgroup conflict can be so disastrous is that members may start to withhold or distort information from each other as a means to get ahead. We've talked about in-groups and out-groups before, my friends, on The Communicative Leader. We already know that our work group is naturally positioned to result in some implicit subgroups. We need to do all that we can to keep our team united. One way that leaders can guard against such behavior is to reward collaboration. That means doing more than giving lip service to working together, but maybe even tying it to bonuses or performance goals, to collaborative successes. Suppose a manager becomes aware of employees withholding information or otherwise engaging in behavior that's not promoting group values and goals. In that case, the leader should act decisively and swiftly link that behavior to clear consequences. Another potential relationship impacted by conflict, that between two leaders. How is this different from the leader-member conflict we've talked about? When a titled leader is experiencing discord in the relationship they have with their own leader, it can bleed over into their team relationships. This might look like the leader being short or less patient with their own employees, or it might reduce resources to the work group because the manager's manager disagrees with the direction the team is headed. Thus, not only does this type of conflict embody traditional leader-member challenges, but it also presents unique challenges for other organizational members. It might interfere with their ability to meet organizational goals. So like we said earlier, we know conflict is ubiquitous to life. That includes organizational life. In addition to practicing those best practices we discussed above, can also really help us to identify what our go-to conflict style is. When we think about conflict, generally tend to fall into one to five, one of five rather, general conflict styles. And each of these different styles, you know, comes together at the intersection of how cooperative or concerned we are for others' concerns and how assertive or concerned we are for our own ideas. So when we talk about these, I'm going to discuss in terms of assertiveness, and that is our own goal, how much we are vying for what we believe or what we want, and then also how cooperative we are. And again, that is how much we are kind of bending or flexing to accommodate others. So let's start with competing. So competing, as the name implies, you are highly assertive, right? You are really working very, very hard to assert your point or your desires, right? You want to win whatever this decision or discussion is. And when we're competing, we're tending to be pretty low in terms of the uh, cooperative scale. So this competing style, it puts your desires first and often involves using control over the other party to get what you want. Again, this style, certainly the clear disadvantage, it's not necessarily considering the other person's feelings. And sometimes competition can help challenge others, and it can be useful in situations where we need immediate action. When might we use this? 
when we need to make a time-sensitive decision, when someone could be harmed, or there is a safety issue, or when immediate or swift change is needed. So whereas we have competing where we're highly assertive and we're low in terms of cooperating with others, now we want to look at collaborating. And this tends to be the gold standard. And why is that? Because you are high assertive, right? You, you are being very attuned to what you want and what you are trying to achieve Well, at the same time, you are high in terms of cooperativeness. So you're thinking about the other. So again, this style, it is preferred because it fully considers both parties' feelings and works toward getting maximum rewards for everyone involved, right? So this is a win-win. We're not compromising and we're not competing with others necessarily. But the thing is, this style can be difficult because it requires the most effort and time from both parties. And again, even though it's difficult, one we should try to strive for in most situations. In order to arrive at a decision where everyone is heard and supports a decision, it takes time. It takes persuasion. It takes active listening. It might even require a vote. Again, great for team dynamics, for allowing everyone to feel included and is best when there's a large change. We want all employees to support and to integrate. So we've looked at competing, right, where we're really working to win. And we've looked at the gold standard, collaborating, which again is where we are balancing being assertive while also concerning uh, and considering the other party's feelings. Now let's look at compromising, and this is right in the middle, right? Like a compromise, mid-tier in terms of our assertiveness, mid-tier in terms of how cooperative we're being. This style is often what happens when we can't reach a collaboration, where everyone can't be happy, because this compromising style, it requires some give and take from both parties. So we're not fully ignoring either's needs, but we're not fully tending to either party's needs either. Compromising is often viewed positively because it considers, again, both parties' desires and we can reach a solution quicker than with the collaborating style we talked about. This style can be used when there's not enough time or resources to work toward full collaboration, But it's important to keep in mind that compromise, it's not always a good thing. And oftentimes we end up settling for a third option that doesn't fulfill our needs in the way that other choices may have. Our fourth style, avoidance, right? Low assertive, low cooperative, right? You're just kind of removing yourself from the situation. Very passive and typically ignores the conflict altogether. So organizational members might just change the subject or pretend, what what conflict? Doesn't exist. I don't see that elephant in the room. What elephant? Although the style can be detrimental to relationships, and it often leads to anxiety associated with avoiding resolving an issue, sometimes in trivial situations, it might be fine, right? It can be used initially to provide parties time to calm down before they're able to engage with each other in a level-headed way. And if time's not the issue, if a relationship is not high priority or it's short-term in nature, then avoiding might be a viable solution. 
Say we're really frustrated at a vendor. They got the lunch order wrong. They were late. They otherwise didn't meet our expectations. It's frustrating, but getting into it with them, it might be fruitless. So instead, we make a note to use a different vendor in the future, right? Finally, our last style, accommodating. I think we hear the term accommodating, at least I know I do, and it it has a positive connotation. And sometimes we might be in a position to do this, but what this means when we're looking at it through this lens of conflict styles, my friends, low assertive, right? You are accommodating others' needs and ignoring your own. You're being so cooperative. So again, this style is the exact opposite of competing. Because remember, when we're competing, we are seeking to win, right? High assertiveness, being low in terms of how cooperative we are. Exact opposite here. Low assertive, like do do what you want. Here you go. Here are the keys to the kingdom. And highly cooperative, right? And maybe, maybe we didn't want to do that. So again, we're putting the other party's needs before our own. So it can certainly be disadvantage because, again, the accommodating party is making all the sacrifices. But it can help to lessen conflict, especially when the issue is more important to the other party. I actually think about this style a lot, especially at dinner time. So, again, small kids can be picky eaters. And I have learned to cook everything in a deconstructive manner, right? Are we eating like a veggie rice bowl? Rice is separate. Every veggie is separate. Every topping is separate. I'm being so cooperative and during a few extra bowls in the process. But at this moment, it feels more important to allow them to make choices, pick from the healthy options I'm giving them, rather than trying to force them to eat it my way or make another dish, right? This makes me think of a friend who was telling me a work meeting story. And she said, Leah, I was just listening to them, trying to figure out why they're pushing so hard on this issue. And it has so little relevance and so little importance. I finally yelled out, is this the hill we're going to die on? Right? And that just really stood out to me. Because imagine yelling that in a meeting. And it's a really important point because we need to know where we draw the line in the sand. But we also have to be realistic with choosing our battles, particularly when the need is artificial, right? I don't want to do it that way, or I wish they were giving us more time, things like that. So again, as we talked about before, collaboration is the most preferred conflict style. There are situations, though, in which other styles may be better, perhaps due to time or resource constraints, or the situation doesn't call for the effort required for collaboration. Understanding how to communicate effectively to manage conflict as a leader can positively influence all of the relationships you share with your followers. Now, what I want to end with are some additional communication-rooted skills for resolving conflict. And I want you to think about how to use these in tandem with the practices we talked about earlier. Another tip These communication strategies, they are helpful when conflict pops up at home or in your romantic relationship or in other interpersonal couplings as well. So these practical communication strategies come from my colleague Peter Northhouse, and I have three to share with you. So number one, differentiation. 
So I want you to think about this very early on in the conflict. So this is when each person or all of the parties are clearly and succinctly clarifying their own position on the topic. So then we know exactly where we vary, right? Because conflict can easily be escalated during this time and even lead to additional negative feelings. So again, we are separating the people from the issue. We're looking at the conflict itself and isolating the issue. During this differentiation period, parties need to give each other a chance to talk about their feelings. And this allows us time to actively listen to try and understand the different viewpoints. Next tip, fractionation. This is a process where we're taking conflict and we're trying fracturing it, right? We're breaking it into smaller, manageable parts. So we're going from this large, complex thing, right? This large, complex issue. We're looking to say, where's the low-hanging fruit, right? What are these, these little things that are going to be helpful for us to look at so we can resolve them piece by piece rather than trying to tackle the mountain at once, The other thing I really like is this approach. One, it can help to diffuse that emotional intensity that often comes with conflict. And then when we're achieving these small victories along the way, when we are resolving these small parts of the conflict, that can help us to be bonded and to help to feel better about collaboration. Here, both parties can work together to identify these components of the issue and to devise a plan of attack. The last one, and this is essential, my friends, and this ties into many of the best practices we discussed earlier this episode, face saving. This involves efforts to protect your image during a threat. People become defensive if they feel their self-image is being attacked, right? That does not feel good. That shifts us away from the issue and into us as a person. In order to avoid a conflict escalating, everyone should communicate in ways to avoid threatening the other's self-image. Again, we're going to use messages such as, ah, okay, I see where you're coming from, but can I share with you how I see it? Things like this, very small, but they're going to be more conducive to resolving conflict rather than making a personal attack or trying to make the other person feel unimportant. Next week on The Communicative Leader, I am so excited to share a conversation that I had with Heather Hansen. Heather Hansen is the coolest. Yes, only technical terms here on The Communicative Leader. Heather is an internationally renowned global communication expert And she's going to talk to us about language as belonging. All right, my friends, that wraps up our conversation today. Until next time, communicate with intention and lead with purpose. I'm looking forward to chatting with you again soon on The Communicative Leader.